This program is brought to you by Juul, sous vide by Chef Steps. Juul takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Welcome to Meet and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's communications director, Kat Johnson. When the leaves start to fall and temperatures begin to drop, one of our favorite things to do is celebrate the funk in food. The festivities really began when the Meet and Three team made our annual pilgrimage to Virgins, Vermont to attend Shaxbury Cider's Harvest Camp. Three days of foraging for apples, tasting lots and lots of cider, and sharing incredible meals cooked over an open fire is truly the best way to welcome autumn. And now we continue the party with the return of one of HRN's funkiest shows. Here's the story from Dylan Hoyer. Modernist Breadcrumbs just premiered its second season. The series features interviews with bakers, scientists, chefs, millers, and authors who are shaping bread's future. Hosts Michael Harlan Turkel and Jordan Werner Berry dive right into what makes bread funky. They start the season with starters. Cultivating a starter is the first step in baking any yeast, bread, or sourdough. Each starter has a unique personality, and people even name them. The name of my starter is it startered from the bottom. Now we're here, aka Drake. Adam Levine. Or Avril Levine. And, and we went and borrowed a starter from a baker friend, and their starter was named Calvin. So we thought, oh, we should name ours Hobbs. Our starters may seem human, but their characteristics boil down to microbiology, right? Rob Dunn is a professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University and a researcher with the Sourdough Project. In an enormous citizen science experiment, Dunn analyzed data from hundreds of sourdough starters sent in by bakers from around the world. What did he discover? Starters are impacted by their environments and the people who prepare them even more than we thought. Jordan interviewed him about what this means for the evolution of microbes. When you make your starter, you're actually giving something of yourself. And one of the really interesting things that that raises is that in the context of all these stories people tell us about, you know, their great-grandma's starter, their great-grandpa's starter, their friend from another continent, they anthropomorphize those starters, but is there something more to it? Are there actual microbial cells that are descendants of the microbes from those relatives? And our evidence so far suggests that's very conceivable. This is giving a whole new meaning to heritage starters. Thanks for the microbes, Grandma. That's one way we can look. The other is that you might imagine over time that there are individual strains that actually evolve in those starters and persist in them through time. And so that that part's not stable. They got me thinking about evolution. These strains have to adapt to their surroundings, right? If so, could the microbes do the equivalent of growing tails? Yeah, I think they could grow tails. So imagine you have two species of bacteria that are in a starter for 100 years. From a bacterial perspective, that's more generations than there have been human generations since the evolution of humans. And so it's entirely possible that if one of those is producing, for example, a lot of acid, that another of the species might be able to get away with producing less acid. But you might expect the genes for lactic acid production to be shut off in that microbe and the and new genes to emerge for other kinds of metabolism. Microbiologically, that would be a tail. Might even be some wings. <laughs> 
The evolutionary history of microbes is a rich area for scientific discovery, but does it impact the quality of how a loaf tastes? You'll have to listen to the entire season two premiere of Modernist Breadcrumbs to find out. Keep up with this special series, taking a new look at one of the oldest staples of the human diet, bread. Listen Wednesdays on HRN's website or wherever you get your podcasts. We couldn't do a show about funky foods without answering one of life's biggest questions. Is the rind on cheese safe to eat? Elena Santagade, co-host and producer of HRN's Cutting the Curd and a certified cheese professional, joined Katie Mosman-Wadler in the studio to discuss. Cheese rinds are probably the topic I get asked about the most. A cheese rind is essentially a protector of the cheese. It's basically mold, good bacteria, and yeast. And different cheeses will have different combinations of those three things. It's totally harmless, really classic, and you could say it helps make the cheese delicious. So who puts the rind there? I mean, the cheesemaker sort of does it right early on in the cheesemaking process. Either the cheesemaker or the person who ages the cheese, the affineur, based on what they're doing during the cheese's aging period, uh, that can yield to other things growing on the rind. So some affineurs or cheesemakers will make a washed rind cheese, and that's like that stinky, funky cheese that we love. And um, with those, the cheesemaker's actually literally taking a, a cloth that's been soaked in either a brine or sometimes it's beer or wine or cider or spirits and, and sort of wiping the cheese down during its aging process. And that's helping to cultivate a different kind of micro environment on the rind. Should I eat the rind? You definitely can eat the cheese rind. And in my opinion, you totally should eat the cheese rind. You should at least taste it. There's some cheeses that I, where I love the rind almost more than the inside of the cheese, which is a crazy phenomenon. When it comes to cheese, the, the beauty of it as a product is actually how safe it is. Because there's so much microbial activity in well-made real cheese, it's actually a toxic environment for uh, harmful bacteria or harmful molds. So, so cheese in and of itself has already got such a ripe environment that you can trust that you know, the things you don't want to be ingesting would actually have a hard time growing on a cheese. Any advice for timid rind tasters? I do think it's good to have, like, some mixed nuts or some water or something nearby just in case you don't love the taste of the rind. Because when there's more yeast on the rind, that can lead to bitter flavors, and that's not always totally delicious. Is it okay for me to eat cheese in my fridge if new mold is starting to grow on it? If it's a harder cheese, you can really just scrape them off or even cut off a very thin slice from that piece. And then trust your instincts. Smell it, taste it. Listen, it's probably not going to be as delicious as the original cheese that you bought and should have eaten earlier. But it's still going to be good enough to eat. Moral of the story is, like, (laughs) eat all your cheese right now. Uh, I always say buy less cheese more often. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll return with more funk in just a second.
program is brought to you by Jewel Sous Vide. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real-life Jewel user. I use Jewel to help me host the most delicious dinner parties. When you cook with Jewel, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Paired app is super intuitive and has a great visual dentist guide. Jewel is awesome for prepping many perfect portions, making it easy to cook for a crowd, and it's hands-free so you can focus on entertaining while Jewel does the work. And pro tip, Jewel is also great for travel. I throw mine in my suitcase if I'm headed to a rental house with any kind of uncertain kitchen. From perfect steak to juicy, tender Thanksgiving turkey, Jewel makes the best food you've ever tasted. Just be sure to save some room for mini jars of pumpkin pie. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code HRN as in Heritage Radio Network to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E code HRN. Welcome back to Meet and Three. We turn now to Nina Medvinskaya and the wonderful world of mycocultivation. Soil is Earth's magic black box. Although you can't see what's in there, you know there's a lot going on. One of soil's closest collaborators, mycorrhizal fungi, play just about every role we can imagine in soil's functionality. But although these microbes date back 460 million years, we've only recently begun to understand their multifaceted benefits. A small niche of fungal experts can't help but beam with pride as they talk about mycorrhizae's merits. Many of our agricultural crops, and especially tree crops, depend on mycorrhizal fungi. And we're at this watershed right now where we just really are starting to be able to see what's happening in there. I feel like it's a really exciting time for knowledge. That was Kathy Hodge, professor of plant science at Cornell University's College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. She got me thinking that while fungus tends to get a bad reputation due to its relationship with decay, it simultaneously serves as an essential collaborator for our food crops and thus helps keep our plates and our bellies full. There are lots of mycorrhizal fungi that live primarily in the soil but are hooked up to the roots of plants. And mycorrhizal fungi help plants gather nutrients and water in exchange for a deal they make with plants in which plants provide sugars that they make through photosynthesis. It's a good deal for both partners, I think. These powerful fungi may have acted as the first rootlets for plants trying to make it up onto land, and so helped plants colonize. Mycorrhizae's identity is so ingrained in their contribution to root health that their very name expresses this function, myco meaning fungus and rhizae meaning root. Oftentimes we say plants don't have roots, they have mycorrhizae, because most plants will have some sort of mycorrhizal relationship. That was Janice Theis, Professor Hodges' colleague at Cornell University. Janice and Kathy got me wondering why there's a growing need to purchase mycorrhizal inoculants off the shelf when they are naturally present in our soil. So I turned to Scott Ingram for answers about why there's a mycorrhizal deficiency in certain soils and consequently a surplus in its demand. 
It is occurring naturally in undisturbed soils, but you know, the 50, 100 years of farming, tillage, chemicals, all that has actually removed a lot of the mycorrhizae. So you do not find that much in soils that have been heavily tilled for a lot of years because over time that removes the mycorrhizal inoculum. If you walk out into a forest or a prairie land that's not been disturbed, yes, you will find it. But most agricultural soils have very little, if any. Scott is a Senior Research Development and Regulations Manager at Mycorrhizal Applications. His company is the leading manufacturer and supplier of mycorrhizal inoculants in roughly 35 countries for over 30 types of crops. Producers of grow crops like corn and soybeans, along with specialty crops such as apples, cherries, and peaches, are some of mycorrhizal applications' top clients. But there's another industry in particular that's very keen on using mycorrhizae to enhance crop growth. The cannabis plant is very receptive and responds very well to mycorrhizae. And you're trying to produce a component in the plant, right? So the healthier the plant, the more likely it's going to produce that. And so we do get a lot of use in the states that have actually legalized it. You're getting more nutrients, getting more water, less stress, and it can actually improve the overall quality of the plant, which is that's what's going to be measured in the cannabis market is the amount of the THC. Ultimately, it's not just plants that can benefit from mycorrhizal organisms. From helping cultivate the food that we eat to sustaining more recreational crops, these microbes help expand our understanding of the world that's thriving right beneath our feet. Fungi just provide this beautiful, whimsical lens on how the world works. They have so many roles in the world. They eat us, they help trees, they kill stuff. They're this strange and magical-seeming group of organisms, but they've got it all figured out. For our final story, Ariama Long has a sneak peek at an upcoming HRN event that will explore the funky ways that cider, wine, and beer intersect. (laughs) (laughs) That's the cheer of members of HRN's team gathered near an open fire at Shaxbury Cider's annual harvest camp. They sat and talked with some of our favorite wine and cider makers. Highlight is just being here at this table with people who have supported me thus far. That's Krista Scrux. I'm a vineyard owner of Zoffa Wines. She's on this year's Wine Enthusiast Top 40 Under 40 Tastemakers and works with both apples and grapes. Following them from tree or stem to bottle, she both farms, ferments, and co-ferments herself. She is one of the wine and cider makers we'll be bringing together at our co-ferment panel, an event at 100 Bogart in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on November 5th. There won't be a roasted lamb and raclette cheese like at camp, but there will be wine, beer, and cider to taste, plus a panel of experts discussing the cultures behind our favorite beverages. What exactly is co-fermenting? It's a technique that is just what it sounds like. Two or more different types of grapes are fermented together in the same vessel. The thinking is that this may give the different elements a chance to meld together and create more unique flavors. Krista had just finished her months long journey to harvest when she finally got to relax with friends in Vermont. So I'm just happy to sit, kick it and chill and drink some awesome shit. Can I say that? Co-ferment will have the same campfire spirit as at Harvest Camp. Facilitating this this environment where so many talented people 
understand collaboration, understand what it means to be in a space. Low Intervention and organic winemakers will come together at the round table and speak on the overlap of their crafts. We're all a part of a rising ship. Other Naturalista panelists speaking are cider maker John Reynolds from Black Duck Cidery in the Finger Lakes, grape grower Derek Trowbridge from Old World Winery in Sonoma, and Brooklyn brewer Lauren Grimm from Grimm Artisanal Ales in Bushwick. So come enjoy some of Krista's and everybody else's alcoholic grape, apple, and green concoctions at CoFermit. Tickets are on Eventbrite. General admission is 30 bucks. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Dylan Hoyer, Elena Santagade, Nina Medvinskaya, and Ariama Long for their reporting. We'll be back next week with an episode where we'll share our feelings about all different kinds of labels. Meet and Three is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson with additional engineering by Amanda Wang. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.